1: Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter-shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
2: Just in case anybody hasn't read it, the book is... Oh, no, I've forgotten... <laughs> The book is My Fates Were Made uh, But Not By Me by Tavris and Aronson and it's all about cognitive dissonance and self-justification. One of my favourite concepts and also one of the ones you learn very very early in your psychology training practically and I, I certainly remember learning about it in sixth form so it's one of the kind of key cornerstone psychological concepts that really emerges over and over and over and over again and I think what's really interesting about this book is that it really demonstrates how how commonplace it is but also because it's so commonplace why don't we all know a little bit more about it because it really does seem to affect so much of our lives and hopefully that's something that we'll be able to get into in the discussion this evening and so I only got a couple of questions in so do feel free to drop your questions in otherwise it will just be me lecturing at you so just so that you don't get bored or feel fatigued from hearing my voice drone on about things that I think are interesting um, and I don't want to miss anything that you guys might uh, have questions about but always worth starting with a definition and so cognitive dissonance is a sense of psychic or mental unease that emerges from holding two opposing sets of beliefs at the same time and it's particularly strong when one of those beliefs is about our character, our self-concept or our tribal affiliations. So a low-level example would be something like, let's say, I believe that smoking is a filthy habit, it's disgusting, only silly people smoke, why would you do it if you know what harm, you know, all of that set of beliefs. So I, I think smoking is bad, but then I meet someone whom I think is really smart and really interesting and... I kind of really aspire to be like them. And I wish, you know, I could hang out with them a lot more. And then, you know, woe of woes, I discover that they are a smoker. And so I have these opposing beliefs in in mind. One is that smoking, that only silly people smoke. And the other is, well, this person that I think is very smart and attractive and interesting is a smoker. And cognitive dissonance theory says, I have to find a way of easing that discomfort of those opposing views. I have to find a way of making it less dissonant and less difficult for myself. And so I have to do something with one of those beliefs. And so I can either say to myself, eh, maybe smoking isn't so bad. Maybe, you know, I I need to just kind of ease up on it. Maybe it is a bit cool. And so I have to change my belief about the smoking or I change my belief shift my belief about the other person. I say, well, obviously they're not as smart as I thought they were. Obviously, actually, I don't think they're that attractive. So I have to find a way of, or, you know, so the theory and, and by and large, I will find a way of trying to ease this dissonance so that I don't have to hold such opposing beliefs. Now, where the book goes to at the end and one of the things that we talk about a lot in psychology is actually can we learn to tolerate dissonance can we learn to either not hold our beliefs as strongly that's a difficult one but can we learn to sit in the shades of grey and if you guys have been following my black and white thinking series my the thinking in public series and all of that then you'll know that this is one of the real skills of social life and of I guess mature discussion is can I can I sustain and can I hold these opposing views? Can I hold them lightly? And can I not turn it into us against them, not turn it into a war, but can I see some shade of grey, some middle position, some compromise, or can I, can I just tolerate the dissonance? So that's the definition of cognitive dissonance. And it's very likely that reading the book, you would have experienced and dissonance in yourself. And I think one of the really most interesting and relevant points to come out of the book is how unreliable memory is. And it's one of, again, one of the things that we learned very early in psychology training particularly around eyewitness testimony and how much of the legal system used to rely on eyewitness testimony because we believe the underlying theory of memory used to be that your mind would hold essentially a almost like a video record of what of the events that you would just kind of remember it as is and and then you just kind of reproduce it exactly as it is whenever you're telling that story and actually doesn't seem to work like that. What happens when you remember something is that you're reconstructing it. You have a couple of pieces that might be real or true or kind of close and then the rest is a reconstruction. And so every time you retell a story, it shifts ever so slightly. So sometimes you know, you might be telling a story and you think, actually, I don't know if I remember being there or whether I saw a picture of me there you know, or I don't remember, I can't remember who told me this, but I remember, so you remember fragments and pieces of it, but you don't necessarily remember it as an exact facsimile, as an exact replication of the events that happened. And one of the the big classic studies in eyewitness testimony was one in which, and I think they talk about it in the book, is where you can actually influence someone's estimation of the speed of a a vehicle crash, a vehicle collision, by changing the words. So what the researchers did was to take different groups of people, and they showed them a video of a road traffic accident. And with one group, they said, what could you estimate what speed the vehicles were traveling when they collided? And then with the other group, they said, could you tell me or estimate what speed the vehicles were traveling when they crashed? And just this, (laughs) just this shift in word saying crashed instead of collided gave the sense that it was a much higher speed that than they'd seen so the people who heard who heard the word crash made much higher estimations than the people who heard the word collide and then what they showed so this is Loftus and oh, this is literally going back 20 years, Palmer and Loftus I think. Then what they did was they were able to implant false memories of things that were on the video so they would say and and how much glass was there in in the crash or where did it fall and people would say oh yeah there was this much glass or it was the um, the left side window smashed and actually no glasses smashed and there hadn't been a problem or there hadn't been any broken glass so they were able to implant these False memories. And that really shook psychology. It was a really landmark study in psychology because it really demonstrated how unreliable our memories were. And it meant that convictions that had been perhaps based a lot on the strength of an eyewitness testimony were now very, very questionable. And it wasn't, it's no longer seen as a kind of very strong piece of, of evidence in order to convict. So those are really important things to remember because because quite often we can feel very confident of our memories and and what happens a lot in therapy is that people will say well i'm not sure how you know if it's exactly true and that's a relevant point and often actually what we're thinking about in therapy is the emotional resonance you know we don't need to know exactly pinpoint 100% what happened We, but what tends to be more accurate is the emotional resonance, that's what we tend to deal with rather than trying to get you to absolutely accurately recreate the past or the scenario or the situation or, or the question. So one of the other things that I thought was very, very important was this difference between error and responsibility. So we quite often think we don't like to make mistakes and we don't like to be found out. If we do make a mistake, I think they raised a very interesting difference right at the end between the American schooling system and the Japanese schooling system where it came to learning about maths. And what they said was in the Japanese classroom, a little boy, was struggling with an equation or a problem for about 40 minutes and he was just gently encouraged and if he made a mistake it was fine and then he eventually got there and his whole his whole class cheered him you know everyone was supporting him and it was understood that mistakes were simply part of the process they were necessary absolutely required in order for him to to get the to get the answer that it's just part of the process whereas they said that in the American schooling system because so much is about testing that the idea of making mistake becomes very very threatening and very worrying and again also I guess because it's a very individualistic society as is the UK that there is a huge amount of shame in making a mistake and getting something wrong and it's not seen as part of the problem it's seen as a sign that you're not cut out for it you're not you just don't have the capacity for this particular thing and that can make the difference between persisting continuing with something until you get it and quitting and and that makes a huge difference with any kind of aspect of success right that one of the things that came up quite recently and I put in my book was a study which found not only is Uh, failing part of success it is a prerequisite for success it's absolutely necessary you have to fail before you succeed and so the idea that we feel so anxious and shamed by anything that looks like failure actually gets in the way of our opportunities to succeed so a very slight segue but thinking about that difference between error and responsibility so that if we can move away from seeing error or or mistakes as something to be ashamed of and more something to either learn from or something that we then have the opportunity to demonstrate responsibility for then it becomes something mu- much less threatening much less frightening and much less something that we will then have to try to defend against through self-justification and and trying you know kind of doubling down on our position so that was something else. So one of the questions that came in which was very good and very what's the word emphatic was how do I tell someone they are self-justifying without making them furious? And and it, this is an excellent question. So let's start from the position of when someone is self-justifying and they're experiencing um cognitive dissonance particularly where it p- pertains to their sense of self their self-concept or their tribal affiliation the very there is a very high risk that they will fall into this black and white position right so which is a very highly defended position so that's your opening that should be your opening assumption is that If someone, if I can see that someone is self-justifying, it's likely that they feel a part of their self-concept or their self-esteem is under threat and they are going to be very likely or have a quite high tendency to defend themselves. And what that means is that they're much more likely to perceive any disagreement as an attack which will then make them defend themselves even more. So let's take an example. So so let's say that I am sitting down with an MP who has just voted not to extend free school meals during the summer to children during a pandemic, right? So we can imagine the scenario, which is that, let's say I'm the MP um, and I say, so belief number one, I am a kind, compassionate, thoughtful person. I'm a a good parent um, and I care about children. So that's my belief number one. Belief number two, the dissonant belief is hunger is bad or children are vulnerable, children should be protected. However, I know that I voted against extending free school meals. So now I have these dissonant positions in my mind. And like where I started out with the beliefs about smoking and and meeting this attractive smoker, I need to find a way to ease that dissonance. And so what's unlikely is that I'm I'm unlikely to say, actually, I'm not a very good person or I'm not a very compassionate person, or I'm not very kind. You know, that's gonna be a threat to my self-concept, my self-esteem, and we're very, very highly motivated to protect our self-esteem. So that's not really an option. For some people, it's an option. Some people will kind of dismiss themselves, but for most people, that's not the option. So I have to do something with this belief. I have to do something with hunger is bad, children should be protected, and so what I might say is something like hunger isn't that bad or the extent of the problem is being over exaggerated or well the other guys didn't do anything about it either so it's not my you know who's really at fault here or it was worse when the other guys were in charge so you know don't blame me or or feckless parents uh, I might say, well, it's not my problem, it's the parent's problem. So all of these things would be my attempt to ease the dissonance that I was experiencing. It'd be a, a way of holding on to my self-esteem, my self-concept, whilst seeing that I behaved in a way that, that, that seemed to go against that. So we've laid out our our scenario. How would I going back to the question how do you tell someone that they're self-justifying without making them furious and remembering your opening assumption which is if someone is self-justifying then it means they're likely to feel very at threat under attack or defensive and so it does not help to lead with a criticism or attack it doesn't help to shout, hurl abuse, criticize, be angry because that will just force that person Right, right back into their fortress and really motivate them to justify themselves even more. So it, it just it's it's absolutely no man's land. It's, it will not work. So criticism doesn't work. Lecturing doesn't work. What is much more effective is to lead with empathy. And so let's say someone says, "Well, when I, my parents had nothing when I was a kid, and I never went hungry." I might say, that's great. I'm actually really, really glad that that was your experience. I think one less adult who had an experience of childhood hunger is a really good thing. I, you know, it would be great if if that were the case for more and more people. And you were clearly very, very fortunate to have the parents that you had and or the situation that you were in. I, I wonder though, whether alongside your recollections of your own experience, I wonder whether you can also hold in mind the possibility that not everyone, or not all children are as lucky as you were, right? So it's, it's I'm saying basically the same thing as, good for you, <laughs> you know, but in a way that is actually, empathetic to their position, understanding what they're saying, and, and being genuinely curious about where they are in their thinking. So my position becomes one of, well, I understand my mind, and I'd like to understand yours better. And what that tends to do is to bring down their defenses, it brings down or reduces the likelihood that they're gonna kind of, you know, put their shields up and be ready to fight me. Because what I've said is, you know, I've made that first step across no man's land, right? I've said, not here. I'm not here to fight, you know, I'm coming over in peace. I just want to know what's going on in your mind. And then that opens up the space for thinking. When we're defended, it's like the space for thinking completely closes. But when we feel understood, then the space for thinking opens up. So how to tell someone they're just self-justifying without making them furious? Don't tell them. Um, so, So manage your tone. Don't go into a position of moral superiority that's not going to help. Approach with empathy. Try to be genuinely curiously, genuinely curious, like hone your own curiosity and ask questions, right? Just just tell me what you think. What's going on? What's that all about? And then hopefully, and usually, their defences come down. All right. So I'm going to go back to one of your questions. In a Russian school, one is shamed in a collectivist way for lowering the common score of the class. Oof. I don't know if that's better or worse. Mm. Well, I mean, shame in any, you know, shame is an unhelpful emotion. Shame is it's an evolved emotion, by which I mean shame doesn't seem to be associated with any one particular culture. It seems to be general ac- across cultures, whether that's industrial cultures or more agricultural or traditional cultures. And so we think that it's really an evolved mechanism and that excuse me, shame emerges as a way of preventing us doing anything that will get us kicked out of the tribe because to be kicked out of a tribe is to become incredibly vulnerable certainly in our evolutionary context you know to be isolated and have to fend for oneself means you're incredibly vulnerable and you're at risk and so shame evolved as a mechanism to help us avoid doing things that would either get us kicked out and or punished and what they find in Uh, cross-cultural studies is that if you get people to imagine different intens intensities of shameful actions so how ashamed would you feel if you stole some bread from your neighbor versus how ashamed would you feel if you kissed your neighbor's partner the intensity of the shame correlates to the intensity of the punishment that others would say that they would give out so it's almost as if we're able to track the intensity of the badness of the things that we do and and to limit those sorts of things but the problem with shame as opposed to guilt so guilt and shame are often mistaken for each other the difference with shame shame tends to be a sense of I am bad there's something wrong with me I'm fundamentally broken versus guilt which tends to be I've done something wrong I've hurt someone I've done something bad and so guilt leads more to reparation, I've done something bad, what can I do to fix it? Whereas shame tends to lead to withdrawal, I am bad, I'm worthless, I shouldn't be here, I'm not good enough to be here, let me just remove myself from this situation. So shame as a as a teaching technique would not recommend, um, shame tends to sit with people for a very very long time and so much of the work that we do in therapy is trying to get people to relinquish the unfair burden of shame. The other thing that I've highlighted is the importance of staying open to feedback. And I say this because it's it's certainly one of the teaching tools. So one of the most um, galling things <laughs> about training to be a psychologist is group supervisions during your training. And what happens is that you present a a session word for word. You have to just put it all down. And often, you know, when you've said something and you know you said something really dumb (laughs) or just like really clumsy or just wrong or, you know, there's been a not very good uh, response. But usually that goes away and those thoughts stay in your head. But in training, basically everyone gets the opportunity to talk to you about stupid thing you just said for years (laughs) um, and it's really tough but essentially it's about making you better right and it always made me laugh when when I was on the bake-off and you you do your little VTs after your um after your after the bake you know so you've done the bake and they take you outside the tent and they're like okay so how did it go? (laughs) Um, or they'll go "Mm, that didn't go very well did it how did it feel to get the feedback from Paul he was quite mean to you wasn't he and I was like yeah and you know that it was I was like I'm so used to getting much worse feedback about things that matter so much more than cake that honestly I don't mind it's all right so the that the ability to tolerate feedback just makes you much more robust. And the ability to separate what you've done from who you are is really an important skill, right? Because I think what often happens is that people will take, again, because we see failure or mistakes as something to be ashamed of rather than something to learn from, that we take that on as a sign that we are fundamentally flawed rather than that we're just human and we're learning and we're getting... Better, and that this is an essential process, and if we can be open to it and not defensive, we'll just get better. So I think so many more people need to be able to to do that, and or that we shift our shift our entire society. But you know that we start having more conversations around the idea that mistakes are an essential part of being human and that we all experience it Experience it, and it's really no big deal and often no one will remember or the mistake becomes something that you laugh about later, you know, having things slightly more in perspective. I'm going to go back to your questions. Is it possible to feel guilty unconsciously? For example, blaming yourself unconsciously if things don't go as expected or from other people's feelings. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. So certainly in psychoanalytic psychotherapy, we talk about an unconscious sense of guilt. And certainly, in, in particular, around offending behavior and I will talk a little bit about this because that's that's why I started my career working in prisons. And what you find, for example, is that some people just always feel bad, always. It doesn't matter what's happened. It doesn't really matter whether it was their fault or not. Sometimes, even when something goes well for them, they can find a way of making themselves feel bad about it, undeserving, I've taken something away from somebody else. It shouldn't be me. I shouldn't have got that promotion. You know, somehow they always end up feeling bad. And from an analytic perspective, so that's, you know, one of the different schools of therapy. We might think, you know, not for everybody, but for some people, there might be this unconscious sense of guilt. That somewhere deep inside them, this person carries a sense of of shame, or a sense of having, of being faulty, um, of not being good enough. And that kind of generalizes out into everything else. And so they can't really pinpoint it. They can't attach it to anything. You know, if they were able to hook it on, oh, well, it was because two years ago, I, you know, cheated on my partner. That's why I feel like a bad person. Because if it were that, then they'd be able to resolve it, right? If you could hook it on a single activity experience relationship then it becomes something that's resolvable or processable but when it's just this kind of unconscious sense of guilt then it just feels much more ambiguous much more kind of ethereal and it's just kind of pervades every aspect of their being and that they end up just feeling bad and that can be really tricky because at that point, it's almost as if the person's just taking it on as truth. Like I am, I'm a bad person and it doesn't matter what you say because I'm a bad person. And if you really knew, then you would know that I was a bad person, but why are you a bad person? I just am, you know? And it becomes this kind of thing that is is kind of a slippery concept that you can't really get your hands on. And that's when you might think that there might be an unconscious sense of guilt um, happening in there. So <laughs> short answer, yes. It's very interesting the shame and guilt comparison. Is there a book or additional resources to deal with guilt? Is it all right that I plug my book here? There is a section in my book, especially for this, because I know that people really struggle with guilt, what I call the big five. So shame, guilt, anger, envy, and jealousy. So the five emotions that I think people struggle with the most. And in my book, there's a section on it, but you know, I'm sure there are um, other books that deal with guilt directly. I'll, if anybody has any recommendations, do pop them in the comments and maybe we'll, we could do it for a book club. That might be good, because I think a lot of people do struggle with guilt. So, Days of Dawn, so interesting. I was saying to a colleague the other day that we tend to think we should simply like or dislike others, especially senior colleagues, but there's that whole area in between. Yeah, but it's not about just fitting people into camps of yes or no, us, them. You know, that there's an entire space. It's a spectrum rather than a binary, and it's about understanding where we fit and and where we might be at fault and where we're, we're not, you know, particularly nice people all the time. That's one of the big things is that we often aren't very well accustomed, haven't really been introduced to, don't talk to very much, our own shadow sides, right? We all like to think that we're, you know, lovely, kind, generous, benevolent people, but we all have a shadow side. We all have a streak of meanness. We all have a streak of jealousy and envy. We all have the capacity to feel, I, in in session I often call it murderous rage. Do you feel like you'd like to kill her? You know, like, and, and it's there and and it's fine. And it's it's much better if you can think about it and talk about it, because in that sense, if you can process it, if you can acknowledge it, and if you can integrate it, then you don't have to cut it off and deny it. And it doesn't then emerge somewhere else in in being being mean to people or in self-justification or in some other way so yes that when none of us is perfect none of us is completely devoid of human frailties but the skill is in is really getting comfortable with your shadow side with that part of you which isn't the one that you you know present to your partner's parents, for example, Um, because it makes you much less anxious. To be able to know yourself to that extent makes you much less anxious, it makes you much less defended. And I think it just, I think it makes you much more grounded as well. I feel like that applies to what you said about receiving criticism that doesn't define you. That generalized sense of shame or guilt is sometimes a fault of some sort of abuse in their past. What if they don't realize their connection? Yes, and, and I think that's absolutely true. And and they often won't realise the connection because quite often what happens with children who have been abused or people who've experienced extensive abuse in the past, particularly where it's come from people that you should have been able to trust or people who should have been able to protect you, is again, in a sense, that kind of cognitive dissonance where this person I love, I you know, should be here to protect me, but this is the person that's hurting me. And how does a child resolve that? Either they say, this person can't be trusted. They're dangerous. I need to stay away from them. They are a bad person. But if you're the only, if they're the only person there to protect you, if they're the only one that you have to rely on, that's an impossible position. And so the resolution often for, for children who have experienced abuse, people who've had very abusive experiences from people who should have been protecting them, is to say, oh, I must have deserved it. It must be me. I must have started it. I must have provoked it. I must have brought it out in them. You know, they, they're, they are nice until I arrived. They like everybody else. They only dislike me. So it must be me. And so it's the resolution of that dissonance in a sense, which can lead to this internalized sense of guilt. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. Okay. You need to be so self-aware to do that, though. Yes, you do. <laughs> you absolutely do. I don't I don't underestimate it. And also, it's not very pleasant to get acquainted with your shadow side. I think... was it? Oh, it was in response to the fear uh, question that I put in my stories um, a week or so ago, where I said, if it wasn't for fear, what would you do? And one person said, I would address my internalised racism. And... That you know, it's not a comfortable thing to do. It's not pleasant. It's not easy. It's very confronting. It's very, very threatening. And so, with all of these very difficult, unpleasant corners of our psyches, it feels much easier to avoid it and just look over here. Let's not, you know, it's that meme where like everything's on fire, and I'm just looking over here at something else completely. But what that. Does the the result of that is that we are always living slightly disconnected from yourself because there's always a part of you that you're trying to hide either from either from other people or from yourself. So no, it's 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 really horrible. So all right, what else did I want to say? So the quote that I thought was really good and, and really something to remember: we are capable of believing things which we know to be untrue. And then when finally proved wrong, impudently twisting the facts to prove we were right. And, and it's just worth knowing that that's a human capacity. And if you leave with nothing but that, that's a really good place to start. You know, we have the capacity to believe things that we know are untrue. Humans are not rational. The idea that humans are rational, logical beings is just wrong. It's not true. We're driven to defend our self concept. And, and we're hugely driven by unconscious and emotional processes. So the idea that you can just live life with this very calm, you know, cool prefrontal cortex way of being is wishful thinking. And so the more that you can get on board with the idea that you're likely to behave in irrational ways, particularly where there's a high threat or high emotion is great because then at least you can give yourself a tiny little bit of breathing space between the immediate response or the, the immediate trigger or event and your response. It's one of the reasons I think I did a podcast that came out this week, the Fitness Unfiltered podcast, and they said one of the questions was, do you think it's possible to have a reasonable discussion on social media? Do you like, like a proper debate? And I just don't. And I think partly it's because of the immediacy, because when you're having a good faith debate, you need time to mull things over. You need time to clarify your own thinking, clarify and make sure you understand what the other person's thinking and doing. You need time to kind of not be in a defense position, but actually be in the position to collaborate. But what, What platforms like Twitter do is say, here's a really powerful emotion, here's someone just shouting, and you have the capability to respond immediately and your immediate response is likely to be one that is defensive and or emotionally driven. And emotions are important, but they're not a tremendous basis on which to make decisions all the time it you know good decisions are a synergy between emotion and reason but much of twitter for example is mostly just emotion so it's yeah it's it's work i experienced my own train of thought trigger an anxious response okay a fight or flight scenario within myself how can i avoid falling into this without knowing what thoughts can trigger it This is where I think it's important to talk it out with someone, because often we we don't have objectivity on our own thoughts. So whether that is with a friend, whether that is with a therapist, whether that is someone, someone who whom you trust and has an opportunity to offer a different perspective. And maybe you talk through what you were thinking. I thought this, I thought this, I was thinking this, I was thinking this, and then I felt this. And then that person might say, okay. well, maybe this and they can offer you suggestions. And then it becomes a negotiation and an exploration of what was going on when you were thinking those things. I'm not, and, and this might just be my personal position, but I'm not convinced we can do that sort of sticky stuff completely on our own because our risk is we we kind of delude ourselves into thinking that we know ourselves like perfectly well and most of us don't. And then the risk is that we end up in rumination where we're just thinking over and over the same things but without any outside light getting in. So I would talk it through with somebody else. All right, yeah, so people become more certain they are right about something they just did if they can't undo it. A really interesting fact and actually one that can almost be beneficial in some circumstances. So for example, you know, let's say you've been with someone for a couple of years and everything's working out well but you're like i don't know shall we stay together or shall we separate or you know shall we get married or shall we leave it like this and what they found is that once once the person has proposed then it's almost as if they just feel better right you've made that decision you've eliminated, eliminated the other options and therefore you just you you self-justify in effect you're like well i've made that decision now I'm not the kind of person who makes bad decisions, so it must be a good decision and therefore I'm happy with it. So sometimes it works in our favour, but certainly in the book, and what they also said is that, and certainly what I see, is that you can self-justify staying in something that's no longer working right and and that becomes part of the um, sunk cost fallacy which is I put so much into this whether it's a job whether it's a friendship whether it's a relationship I've put so much into this I wouldn't have put so much into this if it wasn't worthwhile if it wasn't worth the investment so I should just stay with it when actually maybe it's time to stop And so self-justification can work in both of those directions which takes me to the other question that came in which was how to be at peace how to be at peace with and commit to a decision without rehashing it so a couple of things one of the traps that people fall into when making decisions is believing that there is one right decision. Very, very rarely in life is that the case, that there is one right decision. When you're making decisions, A, decisions need to be a synergy between your reason and your emotion, because emotion is what gives our our decisions meaning, value and purpose. If you don't input emotion, if you don't connect with this feels good for me, this makes sense for me, this feels right, then your decisions whether good or bad feel valueless and you can't ever really be satisfied with them, right? So that's one part. Another part is that quite often our judgment on whether a decision is good or not, or, or really was good or not is made afterwards right so if I leave my job and start doing something else if I'm happy in my new job it was a good decision if I'm unhappy in my new job it was a bad decision but they come back to one central point so you cannot know at that moment really whether it was a good decision it becomes a good or bad decision depending on your analysis your evaluation of the outcome some point later down the line which takes me to a related point which is that can shift depending on how far away you are from that decision point when you look back right so I leave my job six months later I'm absolutely miserable so I think it's a bad decision however a year later it's been the best thing that's ever happened to me so I think it's the best decision I've ever made so your even your evaluation of whether the decision was right or not will depend on how far away you are from that decision making point and also to some degree your underlying personality and attitude right so if you're the kind of person who thinks that the world is win or lose black and white and you feel worse off then you're going to be like well I've made a terrible decision. If you're more prone to optimism or realistic optimism, then you're going to say, well, I'm not happy right now, but what can I do with this? What am I learning from this? What can I take from this? So partly that, again, is going to be affected by interpersonal characteristics. So there's there are those caveats, but I think two big sticking points uh, that people come up against when they're trying to make decisions is one, is thinking that there's a perfect answer and trying to find the perfect answer and thinking, if I just think hard enough, try hard enough, work around it, list out, you know, do a pros and cons list, I can find the perfect answer. There is no perfect answer because as I say, your evaluation about how good a decision it was will come later and will be affected by lots of different things, which is why I always recommend knowing what your values are and choosing making a decision that's most in line with your values right and I think I give this example in the book Um, if not I've certainly spoken about it somewhere so again let's think about you've got a 20 year old and they've got two job opportunities one is to go and work for an NGO somewhere in a country that is struggling and that they can do some good and be on the ground and support people but it doesn't pay very well but you you know you're you, you're adding to the general good in humanity right and the other is a very well paid quite prestigious or like you entry level into a very prestigious uh, job with lots of money what's the right decision to make Actually, none of us can can know because we don't know what that person's underlying values are. Right. If that person's values are contribution, seeing the world, caring and, and, and being of service, then they should go work for an NGO. That's the right decision for them. If for them what matters is achievement, prestige, maybe they need to make money. To take care of their parents or or to you know support someone then that's the job that they should take so really what helps guide you towards a good decision is knowing what you stand for and knowing what's important to you knowing your values your values will, will be your guide and so what that helps with certainly is that even afterwards if something goes wrong what you can say is well I." I was living a life in tune with my values. I was following my values. And that's that can be some remedy. So don't assume that there's a perfect answer. Miss Cake says, can't you value both? And then what? Okay, yes. But for the sake of this demonstration, uh, you have one or the other. And then the other is getting acquainted with loss. So the other thing that really gets people stuck when we're talking about decision-making is that we don't like to experience loss and the fundamental about any kind of decision that you make is that you will lose something right the you know the existential truth is that if i choose this then all of my other options have gone so if i choose to be in a monogamous relationship then i lose the option to date lots of other people. Contrary, if I choose to remain single, then I lose the things that come with being in a couple. Whenever you make a decision, you incur a loss. And if you're not someone who deals very well with loss, if you don't deal very well with disappointment, if you don't like being let down, then you can think that the problem is your decision making when actually your problem is an intolerance of loss. um, And that's where you need to, to focus. So yes, yeah, another really long answer to your questions. I really should learn how to be succinct. All right, so passing shots because we are rapidly running out of time. So acknowledging that cognitive dissonance and self-justification are innate tendencies we are very very driven to do them and we it will make us defensive particularly where it pertains to our (laughs) you're so sweet don't be succinct (laughs) um particularly where it pertains to our self-concept or our self-esteem that we'll be very driven to self-justify how do we start to pull ourselves out of this pit of self-justification. The things, they, they list a few things at the end of the book. The ones that I, I think I would really want to highlight are learning to tolerate dissonance. And that really does come back to the black and white thinking series that I did, which is you need to learn to love that space that Place in the middle, the shades of grey. Get comfy with grey, everybody. Um, get on board with uncertainty. What's lovely about black and white thinking? What's lovely about self-justification is that it gives you the illusion of certainty. It makes you feel like you absolutely did the right thing. You made the right choice. You're one of the good guys. Everything is is peachy, but what it takes you away from is the uncertainty and the capacity to think about other options, right? So if we go back to the MP example, if I am just saying, I'm right, you're wrong, the problem is the parents, my parents were, you know, were had difficult means and I, we were fine, it shuts down my ability to think that maybe other people have had different experiences from me, which shuts out the possibility to empathise with those people. So learning to tolerate dissonance and shades of grey, understanding that it's not disloyal to disagree um I think this one really really stood out to me because it comes up a lot in therapy which is we don't want to say that we were hurt by people particularly this comes up a lot with family I don't want to say that I don't know my mum isn't a very nice person because that would be disloyal it's not disloyal to state facts it's not disloyal to say how you feel and it's not disloyal to disagree because one of the things that allows self-justification to continue and and again we can see in the in the mp vote is is when people don't disagree you know so we saw five conservative mps who were like i kind of disagree and and that's seen as disloyalty it's like no you're allowed to disagree we're allowed to have different opinions and it's about our ability to tolerate and people having different opinions and the final thing I wanted to say was that we need to like shift the way that we think about mistakes that we don't see them as as failures or signs that we've done something wrong but and which I think is a a really beautiful thing is to think that actually mistakes give us the opportunity to demonstrate our integrity, right? So you don't really see, I guess you can, but I, I think, but I was thinking that the way that you best see someone's integrity is their response to their own mistakes, right? So if someone really messes up or, or puts out some bad information, um, which later turns out to be wrong, or they make a very strong statement about something and then they change their mind you get a sense, you get the best sense of their integrity when they say, I was wrong and I'm sorry, and I take responsibility for it and I will do what I can to fix it and remedy it. You know, we don't look at that person as a failure and as someone to be shunned, hopefully. We look at them as someone of integrity and we think, actually, rather than thinking that they're weak for having made a a mistake, we think of them as strong for being able to stand in that error and take responsibility for it. So rather than seeing mistakes as something to be ashamed of and to self-justify your your self-esteem out of, see them as an opportunity to demonstrate your integrity. All right team, that is more than enough for a Tuesday evening. Thank you very much. I will post tomorrow's Uh, next month's book tomorrow although I already have chosen what it is and it's going to be the book is called "Fearless" by Dr Pippa Grange Um, and this really picks up on the conversation we were having a little while ago about um, fear and the things that you guys would do if you felt less fearful. I, I guess I was really touched and surprised and moved by the things that you wanted to do and I would very much like to see if we can help shift some of those is for you. So, thank you again for your kind attention and your questions and your comments and for sharing yourselves. I really appreciate it and I will see you for next month's book club.
1: Hold up.